0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Tonight, we'll go back in time to seasons past when 22 men graced the rugged fields of yesterday, fighting for one more first down, one more yard gain, one final score which would bring victory after 60 minutes of battle on the gridiron. Tonight we'll explore the world of gridiron greats. Welcome to Gridiron Greats, football history and its memorabilia on the Gridiron Greats Publishing and Broadcasting Network in conjunction with Swick Enterprises. We're live from the Wallingford, Connecticut home of Gridiron Greats magazine. And I'm Bob Swook, publisher and editor of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and I'll be your host for the show. Gridiron Greats is the only publication in America which focuses upon the history and memorabilia of the North American football game since its inception in 1869. We cover 140 plus years of football history and memorabilia, and you can find us on the web at gridirongreatsmagazine.com. We're sponsored in part by MSB Sports Cards for one of the largest selections of football cards and football memorabilia on the web. Please check out their website at msbsportscards.com. And we're also sponsored in part by BST Auctions. Check out their website and make sure you register for their upcoming auction at bstauctions.com. Now tonight I'd like to introduce my special guest co-host who is a senior contributing writer to Gridiron Great Greats Magazine, a football memorabilia and card collector, historian that has an incredible collection of pre-World War II items, in particular the 1925 Pottsville Maroons. I'd like to welcome to our show tonight Mr. Jeff Payne. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, Bob,
2: how you doing today? Great to be here.
1: I'm doing good. Thanks for filling in today. Joe had a, a previous uh previous uh, engagement and wasn't able to make it, so I appreciate you filling in on, on uh, short notice here. And I'd like to start off tonight by talking a little bit about uh, your incredible collection of items, and I'd like to talk a little bit about the uh, history and also some of the memorabilia that you have from a very, very fascinating team that hopefully some of our audience has heard about and I know we're going to educate quite a few of our listeners tonight on the 1925 Pottsville Maroons uh, Jeff I'm going to hand off to you give us some background as far as what their uh, what, what is the 1925 Pottsville Maroons why are they important so on and so forth
2: yeah sure Bob so um, you know the Maroons were a professional football team that was around in the twenties, they started around nineteen twenty and went through the decade. Uh, they did play in the NFL from nineteen twenty five to twenty nine Before that they were an independent uh, team played played other coal region teams in Pennsylvania and were part of what was called the anthracite League um, prior to joining mm-hmm. the NFL. You know, they real claim to fame, of course, and there's been a couple of books written about it, including The Breaker Boys, which is a great book I recommend to people. It talks about the controversy around the 1925 NFL championship, where, you know, the Maroons had the best record in the league uh, throughout the, the, the year and um, thought they were in position to win the championship by closing out their season, but they were suspended from the NFL, uh, and were not able or allowed to complete their season, and because they were expended were or, or they were suspended were forced to forfeit what they thought was their n f l championship and The fascinating thing wasn't just that it was that the people of Pottsville um later on, you know as the players and people associated with the team were getting older uh decided to you know rally and try to see if they could convince the NFL to give them back this championship that they felt that they lost. And so Mm -hmm. from the early sixties through the early eighties, they staged reunions. They put pressure on the the league, on the hall of fame, and they tried really hard to get the NFL to 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 reward them and give them a championship that they felt they deserved. And unfortunately for them, it never happened. So it's a fascinating story. And I, I know there's been rumors of a movie coming out about this team and that would be that would be really awesome if it was produced. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. It it would be an incredible story to be told.
2: And again because it happened such a long
1: period of time ago, it's kind of uh, a forgotten history of the NFL, the very early days of the NFL. And uh, I I've always been a big believer they should be reinstated for the championship. There's no reason why they shouldn't uh, shouldn't be denied it. But I guess I guess that's kind of water over the dam right now because it's uh, I don't think it's going to be happening anytime soon. However, the history of the game, the history of that team, lives on, and there are uh, very very nice pieces of what I feel are very very rare historical items of that team. And let's talk a little bit about um, their short, short-lived uh, seasons. And in particular, some of the pieces of memorabilia that might or might not be still in existence. Although I know for a fact, with some of the things that you have in your collection, they do exist. So obviously, the the initial items are football programs of that game time. What can you talk Mm -hmm. about as far as uh, about the programs?
2: Yeah, there are some really nice programs out there uh, from their early days in the NFL and even before the NFL. Uh, you'll see programs pop up when they were independent and playing in the Anthracite League. Um, they are out there. They come up on eBay. They come up on auction, not real frequently, but I'd say a couple times a year you'll see a, a vintage program from the Maroons. Uh, they're not cheap. You know, the Maroons because of the Breaker Boys book and the other they get. You know, you, you're typically looking at 750 to a thousand plus to get an NFL program for the Maroons. They, it is one of the more popular teams in terms of, you know, um, programs and, and people wanting them. But they they're, they are right. out there if you're interested in them. It just uh, will cost you a little bit. And I'll tell you, I, th- I think you brought up
1: a good point. As far as I'm concerned, they're, uh, they're very, very reasonably priced if they are only $750 to $1,000. Uh, because as far as I'm concerned, how many actually still remain in existence after all these years? Maybe 15 for each game, who knows? You know, 20, you know, pick a number. We have really no clue of how many, how many are still out there. And um, one thing I want to point out to our listeners also, uh, I think most of us realize that the NFL program of the 1920s is vastly different than the NFL program today. And uh, Jeff, describe a describe a basic NFL program from the 1920s. It's pretty simplistic, I would say. It,
2: most of them really are. I mean, it's really typically almost a fold-out. Most of them are just a front cover with, you know, the name on it, the team, the, the, maybe the date and the team they're playing. Sometimes they were generic front covers that were right. used, like the Frankfurt uh, Yellow Jackets, who didn't put really any information on their front cover. They used the same cover for all their games. Um, each year they have a different cover usually, but same. And then inside, usually it just had a real simple, you know, lineup uh, in the middle. Uh, there may or may not be some additional pages around it with advertising and maybe an an ad for an upcoming game. You know, I've seen a few programs where they had inserts in them that were advertising an upcoming game. So the, the program was more generic, and then they were either stapling a lineup in the middle or an insert or both. Um, but very simplistic, um, almost to the point where the early 20s programs are really just fold out, you know, single pages, you know, 11 right, by right. 18 that were printed and folded with a front and back cover and, and a lineup in the middle.
1: Right, right. So that
2: that's a shock anybody who's never
1: collected a 1920s NFL program. Um, there is very little there other than what has been described, so you may say to yourself, well, gee, I'm not going to spend $1,000 on a uh, basic uh, you know, sheet of paper folded in half, but again, it's historical, and in my opinion, they're very, very rare, to say the least. Now, tying into the programs, were and what are ticket stubs or tickets like from, uh, let's, let's uh, say, Pottsville? Did, you know, do you have any in your collection? Can you describe any, what are they, what do they actually look like? So on and so forth.
2: Yeah. So I, I do have, um, I believe one or two Pots, Potsville tickets. They're a lot harder in my opinion to find than even the programs are. Right. Right. Um, I agree with that. You know, I, I agree with that. Yeah. They're, they're very difficult to find. And, and a, a lot of the early NFL teams, the tickets, the tickets are very difficult to find and, and you'll find most of them, of course, because they were redeemed or, or torn um, or stayed punched or whatever was used to, you know, verify that someone had used the ticket when they entered the stadium. And um, and a lot of times, you know, the the stubs don't even have the information on that piece of the ticket as to the game itself. And so you have right, to really right. dig to figure out, and you know, what ticket it even and what game it even is from. So um, it, it's kind of a puzzle, in my opinion, a lot of times when you see ticket stubs to figure out, you know, really what game they were associated with. And I've seen a lot of ticket stubs that the description in the auction isn't even correct. You know, you dig into right, it and it's right. just wrong. Either they were guessing or, or someone gave them bad information, but when you look into it and finally track down, you know, something about the ticket that makes it unique, it, they don't even have it described properly.
1: Right. Right, right. I agree with that, and I and I think the college football tickets of that era are were better produced. They were more ornate, and uh, they had much more information on them than what we saw, you know, what we see from the NFL from the twenties, to say the least. Is there anything else out there that that you know of, and or you could describe to our audience as far as far as memorabilia and or possible items that have historical significance to Pottsville?
2: Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, a couple of things that I really like um, from from my collection and other people's collection is in 1926, the Maroons published a real photo postcard set of their players, an RPPC set of the 18 players on the team. And um, they are really hard to find. But it is an early, early NFL professional football card set. And you just don't see – in even the, you know, the twenties and thirties, you know, football card sets that are all professional. A lot of times they have college DIN or it's a multi-sport set or whatever. It is team related, but um, it is an all professional, you know, football card set, albeit postcards. And they're extremely hard to find. I've spent the Mm -hmm. better part of the last decade trying to find them (laughs) Uh, because they are really hard, really difficult to find. You'll see the images. Interestingly enough, the photos that they um, made these postcards out of are very common photos. In fact, they show up in the reunion books that were produced when the, the Maroons did reunions in the sixties and they, they built some, or they created some really nice reunion, um, you know, kind of, um, you know, programs that people got when they went to the reunion and, they used those same photos, which is kind of cool to see them used all those years later. Uh, those are great right, things right. to collect, by the way, too, for those that you know don't want to dip their toe all the way back into the, the pre-war stuff. Is there is some pretty healthy amount of, uh, of reunion material that's out there uh, from the 60s that you can get for this team, too. Um, the other thing I really love that was produced back in the 20s, was the football charms, so after the nineteen twenty eight season, as a thank you to all the players, the Maroons had little mini anthracite coal footballs created um, and they sketched name and and their position and the year into them and they were meant to put on a charm bracelet or some sort of a you know charm um, that you you know it was a charm you could put on things and and they gave, as far as I can tell, out one to each player. So there's really only, you know, there were probably only 15 or 20 produced, and one for each player. I think there's been about three or four that have popped up over the years. I was fortunate enough to snag one myself um, from uh, Pete Henry, who's one of the Hall of Famers that was on that Mm -hmm, team, mm -hmm. and also played for Canton. Um, There's been a few others that have popped up, and, they 're really cool as well it's a really nice nice uh nice piece all right i'm going to step back to the postcards. Um,
1: a lot of collectors, as they become more advanced collecting, start to discover in my opinion the the beauty of a lot of these early postcards and especially real player uh, postcards that you know do exist and they do come up from time to time. I do. Issue the warning. Though there have been reprints over the years of the postcard, mm-hmm. postcards, and again, you know, you have to really do your homework to make sure. If something looks too new, it probably is a reprint, and and it was probably a reprint, possibly from the 40s or the 50s, not done maliciously at that time, but just done so that mm-hmm. they could issue the, you know, the photo again type of situation. As we become more mm-hmm. advanced with technology and the like, uh, postcard. You know, duplication has become much more sophisticated. At the same time, with a lot of sepia toning being done on postcards to try to pass them off as mm-hmm. as real when they're you know basically just a, a reprint worth whatever printing cost was for it, and that's it. So again, I, I do warn, and I've talked about this over the years. You know, make sure if you're purchasing a postcard, you know, do you have any providence to it? You know, does it? You know, w- what examine it real closely. Obviously, if it was mailed. Make sure the postmark and the stamp is of that era, um, so on and so forth. Do your research on that at the same time. So uh, that's important as far as I'm concerned. Because, again, it was very common at that time to actually mail postcards out, especially after, uh, more so in a college uh, game, after the game was ended, maybe one or two photos was were uh, printed on a postcard. And then they were used so that you could be mailed out uh, to your friends saying, I attended the game, here was the score, so on and so forth. So uh, it's, a, it's a great area of collecting, to say the least. Those uh, football charms that uh, you mentioned, too, are absolutely beautiful. I mean, they are, they are to me, rare and rare, to say the least. So uh, real great, interesting items uh, for them. Anything else
2: that you can touch upon, Jeff? Yeah, the only other thing, and this does uh, date to the 60s, but I just think it's really cool, is the whole argument the the Maroons had around the, you know, why they were, um, shouldn't have been suspended from the NFL was they had played an exhibition game and the NFL claimed they hadn't got permission to do it and they claimed they did and it went back and forth. Part of their case in the 60s was to um, submit some notarized statements from people that were in the room when the owner of the Maroons called the NFL to get permission, the was mm-hmm. transcribed and, and what was discussed on that call is documented in these notarized statements. And um, there were two people in the room other than the owner, the owner had passed by the sixties, but you know, Pottsville was able to get two notarized statements. And I was fortunate enough to pick one of those up at auction. It was in a huge um, just bin full of, Um, papers and other things that came out Mm -hmm. of the the estate of uh, someone from Pottsville. And uh, I was able Mm -hmm. to get one of those pieces, which I think is is just really cool. And I'm glad it didn't end up in the dump somewhere because it is a, it is an artifact, uh, you know, that should be preserved for the NFL. Right. Right. And
1: uh, and again, uh, I was, as I say, I was blessed to see some of that stuff uh, a few weeks ago. And to me, it just, the amazing historical items of the early NFL. I mean it's just it's a shocking to me to see what um was perceived as junk uh because some of those pieces are just amazing, truly amazing. And again, this is this is the preservation of the history of the game and this is what, you know, what I think our hobby is about to a large degree, especially when it comes to the early NFL stuff, which I think to me is is uh, you know, studied by few and pretty much disregarded by the NFL today, especially, uh, you know, the 20s, the 30s, and the 40s. And it's uh, just an amazing story. So, Jeff, I, I appreciate you sharing that with us today. Uh, it's really an incredible story. And I highly recommend, uh, you know, if anybody's interested in, in the possible, uh teams of the 1920s, do some research on it. There's some great information out there. And uh, and items out there still available, which are very expensive, however, to me, are, are so historically significant, uh, it, it truly amazes me, to say the least. All right, at this time, we're going to move along, and I'd like to met, uh, welcome our special guest. Growing up overseas in Portugal, there's only one football game on television the entire year, and that's the Super Bowl. So the first football game he watched was the Super Bowl game between the Philadelphia Eagles, of the New England Patriots in 2004. His background was pure football, the other one that's called soccer. He had played and watched soccer all his life until he suffered an injury that devastated his dream. He then went on to be the youngest basketball scout at that time. He was 15 years old, scouting American players to play overseas, and in particular in Portugal. But the sport that truly mesmerized him was football. He started researching more about the history of the game, falling in love with the Philadelphia Eagles from that night in 2004 when the Super Bowl ended at 4 a.m. in Portugal. In 2009, he arrived in the United States by himself, and nine years later, he achieved a Bachelor's of Criminal Justice degree from Penn State and afterwards a Master's degree in Criminal Justice from Arizona State. But his true passion and hobby is collecting Philadelphia Eagles memorabilia, and by the way, he's only 29 years old. He specializes also into the history of the Potsdam Firebirds, which was the Eagles farm team from 1968 to 1970, preserving the history, stories, and memorabilia, his long-term goals one day holding a physical building where both Eagles and Firebirds items can be displayed for everyone to enjoy. He learned in Europe all the soccer teams there honor their history by holding museums inside their stadiums, a practice not yet used in American sports except for a few teams. He currently works as a security officer with the goal of working for Homeland Security Department, as he is in the process to acquire double citizenship. He's married with a son. He devotes himself both to working, spending time with family, and learning more and more each day about the history of football. He is the keeper of the history of the minor league football team, which is known as the Pottstown Firebirds, and has just written a new book on them entitled The Greatest Stories Never Told, The Detailed Chronicles of the Pottstown Firebirds. It is at this time I'd like to welcome Mr. Bruno Balcesar. Bruno, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Good morning. A pleasure being here.
1: Bruno, I'm going to start off by asking you, how, how did you become interested in the Pottstown Firebirds?
0: Well, um, as those who have heard about this team before, they probably have heard it from the n f l films um they in nineteen seventy um mister Ed Sable himself uh decided to uh pick a minor league football team to follow, and initially it was just supposed to be a 30 minute short documentary um as he got as he got to Potsdam, he ended up finding different characters and he ended up following the team the entire year. Um, so we ended up producing a one-hour special that initially was aired in the 1972 Super Bowl. Um, Many years later, I'm flipping through the TV channels, and um, I stopped at ESPN Classic. This was about 2010. And on ESPN Classic, they were re-airing their 1972 special about the Potsdam Firebirds um, documentary. Um, And so, you know, I'm watching it, and the first thing is, I'm a Philadelphia Eagles fan in memorabilia Collector. The first thing I noticed is their uniforms. They mm-hmm. seem awfully similar to the ones that the Eagles uh, wore at that time. Um, so I ended up watching the show, and the characters, every player, seemed to have their own personal identity. That was quite interesting, to say the least. And um, as soon as the documentary finished, uh, and I put, I was recording it as well as I was watching it, and I replayed it. Um, and as I replayed it, I started researching more online what exactly this film was. Um, and as soon as I found out that um, they used to have the, the old equipment from the, the Eagles, then I started this research. Okay, I need to find out who were these guys exactly. How these guys acquired the equipment who is this team? Is anybody still alive? Um, Can I find any game-used items from this team? Because most of the Mm -hmm. memorabilia from the the 60s, uh, from the Eagles, uh, it's quite hard to acquire, especially their helmets, uh, which their helmets have the wings painted uh, instead of the the decals that they they used in the 70s. So from then on,
1: Mm
0: -hmm. that's when I started researching more. When I first Went online, I could barely find anything about the team. Uh, it was very <laughs> scarce information. There was not a lot of stuff out there. So, um, But I became interested really out of that documentary, which then later I found out that they did a revisited edition. In 2000, they visited the team 40, um, 30, 30 years after they did the first part, and then they went to see what happened to everyone all these decades later. Um, so that's sort on of DVD um, that NFL films have. Um, and and they, were, they were so interesting that really the 1972 pre-Super Bowl uh, pre-game show um, mm-hmm. was so popular that that really created path to now all the pre-game shows and the off-time shows we have in the Super Bowl. Um, that became, people really enjoyed that special.
1: You know, it's, uh, to, to date myself, i got a few years on you, Bruno. Um, I do remember distinctly listening to Harford Knights football here in Connecticut, and I do remember them playing Potsdown on several occasions, and uh, the, the old uh, WTIC radio here in Connecticut, it was 50,000-watt station, so for a young kid in North burnford Connecticut growing up, I, they used to play on Saturdays, usually Saturday nights, but and they broadcast, they're both home and away games. So it was the coolest thing for me to listen to football on Saturday night. And uh, I had my little transistor radio, and I, I distinctly remembered. I was a big fan of the Knights at that time. So I, I find this uh, your interest in Pottstown to be amazing at your age, because to me, a lot of people kind of just forgotten about that league to a large degree, uh, and the great, great players that came out of that week. And, again, it was uh, what a lot of – historians may not, may or may not know, and a lot of collectors may or may not know, it was an actual minor league for uh, professional football at the time. And it's it's pretty much, uh, you know, it faded in the 1970s completely. And at the same time, you know, I've always maintained football needs a great, you know, some sort of minor league system like the other sports. And I don't understand why they, you know, they use colleges as their minor leagues rather than anything else. But that, that, that's a fascinating story to say the yeah, they
0: Yeah, it's actually interesting because the the Knights and the Firebirds had probably the biggest rivalry uh, in '69 right. and yeah. 1970. Uh, as a matter of fact, the 1970 championship uh, was supposed to be taking place in Potsdam, but they moved it to Artcourt mm-hmm. because they thought that the, the players were getting a cut on the ticket sales. So both teams mm-hmm. agreed that they would sell more tickets in Artcourt and then that 1970 game became the famous uh, snow game uh, where uh, it's well documented how bad the snow was around the stadium. And, and the fans still showed up um, more than they would have shown up in Poxetown. Um But mm-hmm. it, it, regarding the minor league system, it's curious that nowadays we see college as the minor leagues. <laughs> Of the NFL, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. but 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 as you say, I mean, especially this league, the Atlantic Coast uh, League. The, as you said, the, the Knights, for example, they were affiliated with the Green Bay Packers, um, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and they weren't the only ones. The Bridge the Bridgeport Jets were affiliated with the Jets from the yep. AFC. Yep. Uh, the Long Island yep. Bulls uh, were affiliated with the Giants. The Lowell Giants were affiliated with the Boston Patriots. And then you had the Southern Division, which had Roanoke, uh, the Redskins, they were affiliated with the Redskins, uh, the Firebirds, mm-hmm. obviously, with the Eagles, the Harrisburg Capital Colts with the Baltimore Colts, and the Richmond Roadrunners with the New Orleans Saints. So it's actually interesting mm-hmm. that these leagues actually not, not only had affiliations with the NFL, but they also had affiliations with the AFL, um, right. So, right. <laughs> which right. most people didn't know, but both leagues, they were rivalizing. They were actually united in the ACFL, uh, which was, to me, quite, and and, I mean, Bob Tucker, he played for the Firebirds in 69, and then he went on to play for the Giants uh, for seven years in the Vikings, all the way down to 1970. And who's to know if he was in this minor league system, uh, if if you'll never see players like that actually having the chance to go to the NFL. Uh, so a lot of talent was 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 gathered in these minor, so-called minor league, and the NFL was able to reach out to it and and reutilize them, um, which mm-hmm, to me mm-hmm. is great. And, and I still agree that they should exist. Some type of league should exist, um, but yep. unfortunately,
2: the NFL likes to monopolize <laughs> the league.
1: All right, all right, all right, all right.
2: That's fascinating stuff, Bruno. You know, your Super Bowl story resonates with me. You know, I got to confess, I'm a lifelong Patriots fan, so, you know, we probably don't get along on the field. (laughs) But I remember that game. I remember that game you were watching from Portugal because we had gone to a Super Bowl party, um, which I wasn't very excited about because I really didn't want to stand around and talk to people. I wanted to, like, watch the game since I had kind of an interest in it. And we got there, and almost everybody there was an Eagles fan. So I was like, well, this isn't going to work for me. So I, I stayed and had some food and kind of played with the kids for a little bit. And then I told my wife, hey, would you mind kind of hanging out with the kids while they run around? I'm going to go back home and watch in the basement. And so I went, I went back. And so when you were watching the game at 4 a.m. in Portugal, Bruno, I was hunkered down in my basement in Virginia um, by myself, biting my fingernails. You know, watching that game. So, uh,
1: uh, but I gotta
2: know. I mean, I gotta ask you. The the Eagles lost. I mean, you should be a Patriots fan and you should be a Hartford fan. What What happened there? And and more seriously, you know, how did you come up with an idea to write a book about all this? I'm I'm kind of curious. I've worked with authors. It's a huge endeavor. How did you decide to write a book?
0: So to answer you, it's funny because I. I was looking at, right before the Super Bowl, they had the road to the Super Bowl. It was like a one-hour documentary, and I was like, okay, so I definitely got to pick a team. I'm going to watch these games, so I'm going to pick one of these two teams. Um, I just like the the way the Eagles, the road, they were telling the history of the Eagles. How they, they never won a Super Bowl. They really only won the, the last time was the 1960 championship. So I decided to root for the underdog, per se. Um, so I'm going to root for the ones that have not won the longest, and uh, that's how I, I became Eagles fan. But I guess I to a certain extent I became an Eagles fan because uh, they were more not as winners uh, <laughs> as uh, the Patriots were at that time. Um, regarding the book, I started speaking with so many different uh, players. I They were telling me all these interesting stories. It has gotten to the point where I had so many stories that, that to me, they were interesting. That I thought that they would not only not be interesting to me, but to the football lover, to the football historian, but more importantly, to uh, to the average Joe, because these were stories of people from the '60s trying to figure out life. These were just young kids coming out of college with a goal in mind, but not knowing how to reach. This dream that they had into an actual goal, uh, into actually reality. So they were willing to do basically whatever it took, but on their journey to do whatever it took to succeed, they were also living life. Um, and and these these stories of living life, to me, were very interesting. Um, it, you know, and of course you got you got the King Corcoran, which he, he was by himself a, a true character, to say the least. Um, and and then around him it was this plethora of people too that that they were they were coming from all parts of America into this little town that probably nobody really has heard about Pottstown, 45 minutes outside Philadelphia, um, into probably a weather that isn't even very appealing to be in. Um, and and I get stories from these guys who were working in Baltimore, some of the players were in Baltimore, and then they had to drive. 100 miles just to go to practice, then go to practice three times a week, come back every day back to uh, Baltimore to work, and then on Friday nights go to drive right before the game and then go to a locker room of a high school football team uh, that they were renting, put their pads on, then play. After they play, they have a big bucket full of beer and they, they just drink all night long. And then they go drive back to where mm-hmm. they're from. Um, so the, these different, it was just a different environment. Even football was different, uh, not just in the minors, but also the NFL. Um, it's interesting that one of the, the stories that I came across, the most cheerleaders were actually minors. They were under the age of 18. Uh, some of them mm-hmm. were 14. 14, 15, 16, 17 was about the average. Uh, uh and and it's quite interesting that as soon as I found out I thought it was it was different. I you know, because in today's world when we imagine two leaders, we imagine twenty year olds and and there's a there's a certain stigma connected to it. Um so when when I started hearing that I was like, okay I, I is this, a mis- is this a typo on the newspaper? Is she really 16 or they just messed up? And then I, I was able to reach out to some, and they were like, no, I was 16, 17 years old. Um, and I had a good time. I was dancing out there. I didn't know what I was doing, but I was dancing, and people appreciated <laughs> it. Uh, and, uh, but and then I decided to see what the Eagles were doing at, the, at that time. Were the Eagles cheerleaders also 16 or were they 20, 25? And I came to find out, too, that in 1969, most of them were also under the age. So it wasn't just that it was a Potsdam thing. It was also an Eagles thing. Um, and, 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 and all these little bits and pieces of, of I call it Americana, uh, like American history, um, that, that most people, I don't think, were aware of it. Uh, that's what really triggered my interest of writing a book. Now, writing a book, as you state it is something very hard to do, especially for someone that English is not their first language. It's even harder to do that, um, and and I can attest that I when I started gathering these stories, I really didn't know what direction I was going. Uh, I had so much information, but okay, now I need to make these into sense. These needs to make sense, and um, so it was. It took me, I want to say, about nine nine to ten months to actually put something together. And most of the time, he wasn't even writing. He was just deciding what exactly I wanted to write, what stories I wanted to pick. Was I going to do Eagles versus Firebirds in that period of time and compare both teams and and both worlds of football? Um, But as I started talking to more people, more people were like, you got enough Easter year for the Firebirds, enough stuff that has not been said more about the firebirds than the eagles because there's stuff out there about the eagles. Even though I must state that uh, Jay Acton wrote a book called The Forgettables, uh, which is a book about the 1970s season of the firebirds. Um, I actually had read the book many years ago, uh, but I didn't really remember the stories. And the way I did to write this book is I didn't touch their book whatsoever because I didn't want it to get any ideas from their book. So, whatever this book is, really it doesn't transplant to what uh, the old book is from Jay Acton. Um, for those who know what book is, and for those who don't know what book is, I recommend it because Hollywood also considered making a, a movie out of it in 1974. Uh, they acquired the rights for it. They even uh, went to Portstown, some Hollywood executives, and they, um, they wanted to record the movie down there but it ended up not happening for some some odd reason. Um, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a great story, um, and it's still a timeless story because we can all connect. Um, anyone can connect the struggles and the things that they do, and they have to go through in order to achieve their dreams and their goals.
1: That's interesting. We've, we've had many authors on, on the podcast over the years and many of them have have said that the actual writing of the book didn't take that long, but the research that was involved mm-hmm. in it took the most time. and you you, you touched upon realistically, you, you know if you spend nine or ten months on research of a of a, of a topic of a subject, and it mm-hmm. takes a very short period of time for you to write it it's still an excessively long project one way or the other and to have to come out you know is certainly a uh you know a, a great feeling to to say the least so i take it that it took it took you what roughly nine nine to ten months to do the research on it
0: actually uh no that that was just more or less the writing process the, everything oh, okay. really started in, there, in that day in 2010 when i saw the documentary the first thing i did it was I went to Facebook, and I tried to research if any of these former players were, at a, were on Facebook because it was the easiest one oh, okay. for me to, to get. Yeah, and then I actually got the chance to talk to Irving Nobs, which, unfortunately, has yes, passed away. But um, from, then, from then, I got the connections from other guys. And it wasn't until about, I want to say, last year that I started researching more, finding one guy here, one guy there, uh, uh, there's even one person that lives in American Samoa uh <laughs> one of the former players oh, wow. and uh and so I, from one, I was able to get the network that he had to find more from that person then I and so it became like a little connection uh that um, at first the players were reluctant because as you know, the first thing they hear from my voice is someone with an accent, and there has been people before that somehow, some way, it claimed that they had something to do with the firebirds, and they tried to make profit out of stories that they mm. made up. And so they were they were quite reluctant at the beginning to trust me and to share their stories. But after a while, and they saw that I created a website, that I asked about the firebirds, and so on and so on. They were able to open up more and, and, and trust me more, because some of the stories are not necessarily stories that they might be proud of because they were young. Uh, but because they, if, you, if they trust the writer and that the writer has their best interest, then they will open up more and they will tell you more fascinating stories. So, uh, in all said and done, it really was a project that has took about eight years, but more seriously, in the last year, that's where the main research has occurred.
1: Okay. All right. And, and again, how long how long did it, it realistically take you after the research was done for you to actually write the book?
0: I want to say two months and a half to three months.
1: Okay. Mm. All
0: right. mm. It was quick as soon as I had everything, and, and I would recorded the the, the conversation mm-hmm. over the phone. Mm-hmm. I was just recorded because they. They were the ones that knew the stories. I only basically had to organize it, where to put it, which stories to pick.
2: That's that's fascinating. So the collector in me's got to ask you, Bruno. You know, Philadelphia Eagles. That it's a a franchise that's been around for a long time, back to the 30s. Um, Do you collect uh, things from the Eagles? And what kinds of things are in your collection? What kinds of things are you looking for? And Kind of what what do you collect from the eagle side of
0: things? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I have quite a few items. Uh, of course, not as much as I wish I had. Um, I don't focus so much about the more recent stuff. I like the I like the old stuff. The the back then where one element was worn for maybe five six years. Uh, a jersey was worn for one to two years instead of these days. Seems like the jerseys worn uh, each game. They wear a different jersey. Um, so I like I like the old stuff because the the, the jerseys, the, the the marks of use, the stitches uh, the restitches stitches on the jerseys and uh, everything. It, they have a, they tell a story. They tell a battle story. It's uh, so I I love the old equipment and I love the silver wings. Uh, on the Kelly Green helmets. It's, it's, to me, I don't want to sound old, but to me it was probably the best uniforms uh, that existed in, in football. Uh, but in my collection, I have, for example, uh, uh, a white uh, helmet. Uh, the Eagles worn uh, the white helmets with the, with the green decals uh, from 69 to 1972. I have one game-use helmet uh, from that period of time. Um, I also have a Mary Cursey, which he was a punter in 74 and uh, 75 for the Eagles. Um, I had, I have his game his helmet. Uh, he doesn't show a lot of usage because again, he was a punter. So there's only so much it marks a punter will have on his helmet. Um, that, that style was the style that came right after the white helmets. Uh, they went to the Kelly greens with the, with the silver wings, decal on the helmets. Um, also, more recently, I have a 2004 uh, Super Bowl game used jersey from the game we talked about uh, from Lozo in France. Uh He was uh, one of the bench players for the Eagles. I actually was able to track him down, and I got the jersey directly from him, uh, which was was pretty cool because I think not only the item speaks for itself, but the story behind acquiring the item is also is also fascinating. Um And also, uh, I just acquired, this was just like last week, I got a Ganyu's Eagles jersey style that the Eagles wore between 1956 and 65. But these jerseys specifically still has the the tags in it, uh, the Mm manufacturer tags in it, because a lot of the jerseys have crouched pieces, and those pieces will be cut off over time. Uh, so a lot of the Eagles jerseys you find from their period of time, you cannot find the tagging in the jersey itself. But this one still has all the tags, so which is fascinating to me because one of the tags is uh, Mitchell and Ness sporting goods, which uh, a lot of people these days know Mitchell and Ness produce a lot of throwback uh, jerseys, uh, throwback retail jerseys. Uh, but at the time, they were a manufacturer from Philadelphia, um, so they they produced um, Eagles jerseys until the 1963 season. So because these, uh, these jerseys still have the, the the tag, it was worn until 1963, uh, which uh, it's the number 75 that's on the jersey. Uh, so it was at that time Jim McCusker uh, from Pittsburgh was the one that possibly wore or it might have been from John Mayers from Washington, Then he played from 64 to 65, which, by the way, John Mayers is uh, Game his Eagles helmet, is at the University of Washington uh, Museum. They have a museum in the school uh, for sports memorabilia, and uh, his family gave, he's gave his Game News Eagles helmet to the university. Um, I also have Brian Dawkins, which is my favorite Eagles player all time. I have uh, his uh, 1997 uh, white game-use jersey. Um, He has a lot of marks, hit marks, and stains, like you expect, from a guy that played so aggressively. Um, This was his second year in the league, Um, so it's uh, a very rare jersey. One of my proudest items I found uh, was dug deep on eBay uh, from someone that had no idea what kind of helmet they had, they had advertised it as being a retail helmets. Um, but I ended up finding that it was a 19... So this helmet, uh, the interesting thing about this helmet is that in 1996, the Eagles changed their colors from their Kelly Green to the Midnight mm-hmm. Green that mm-hmm. they currently use. And so this helmet was a Midnight Green in 1997, And 1996 current style of, of jerseys and helmets. Uh, when I bought the helmet, I noticed that the in, inside the shell, he had the old color, the kelly green in it. So when I got it in the mail, I noticed that what they did was, was a 1995 helmet. There was recondition, and when they reconditioned, they painted it over the kelly green uh, color. So they painted the midnight green over the kelly green, and then the, inside the helmet, there was a, a, name, a name tag, but he was uh, scratched over, so I put some alcohol over that tag, and I was able to erase the scratches. And he ended up being, uh, in the helmet was uh, used by um, by Christie Johnson, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, Christie Jones, that's who wore the helmet in 1997. So you, uh, it was one of those finds for fifty dollars that uh, that is actually unique. Um, hmm. And of course, I have other things like Michael Vick me used pants and even a pylon used in a 2014 game. Uh, but of course, you know, I'm always trying to acquire more items.
1: So I'm curious. You got you got a lot of Eagle stuff. Did you, or do you have any uh, Pottstown Firebird stuff, memorabilia yes, or anything uh, for in your collection?
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, actually, for most people who might not know, but in 1968. Uh, the Firebirds used the old Philadelphia Bulldogs uniforms, uh, oh. bulldogs from the, the CFL. Um, and um, so the team went uh, De Filippo, which was the head coach. He was, on the, he was one of the coaches with the bulldogs. And in '68, the team was looking to acquire some kind of uniforms before they got the relationship with Eagles. So they, uh, they were able to get uh, De Filippo knew where the old uniforms were and they got them for almost free uh, because there was no need for these uniforms anymore. Um, so anyways, um, I have a, a 1968 um, Philadelphia Bulldogs slash on Firebirds game used jersey that I acquired from the player. Uh, Art Aloy was, was the player from Pittsburgh, um, and I also got his playbook, he was at training camp with the Eagles in 1969, and, uh, and, and then he went on for, to the Firebirds in '69 because the Eagles sent him to the Firebirds. And um, so it's just a regular binder uh, that has some stickers on the front that say spots on Firebirds. Uh, and, and, and in the pages, he added up the, the Eagles uh, playbook and the Firebirds playbook in the same playbook by itself. Uh, so I have to in my collection. Just last week, I was able to find uh, the 16 millimeter tapes, original tapes, from the entire 1969 championship game against the Hartford Knights, where the Firebirds won 20 to zero. Um, so there, there's ground footage uh, from the game and just the regular footage uh, from the game. So um, I just this week I just bought a 16 millimeter projector. <laughs> Just to uh, play those types. Um, wow. Which, wow! To my knowledge, <laughs> this is the these are the only types that exist uh, from the 1969 championship game. Um, it was acquired from uh, uh, Norfolk Neptune's uh, trainer that he uh, because he was a trainer for the for Norfolk, which Norfolk had a lot of the Firebirds players after they they ceased in 1970. Um, so. I have that too. Uh, I might receive this week a uh, game-used helmet from the Firebirds, which obviously that's also Eagle's uh, helmet. Um, and uh, I also might receive this week the 1969 championship trophy, uh, which uh, that uh, will be well documented on the website. Um, but uh, it's it's not very easy to find uh, memorabilia of the Firebirds. I noticed that ever since uh, I started taking pre-orders from the book, I started seeing a lot more items floating on eBay, um, and and they could have gone for cheaper than they are going to the items. But uh, so I see that there's when these items show, appear, there's quite the interest on the Firebirds.
2: Wow, that's awesome. That's Those are real keepsakes. Can you give us, our listeners, some more information, Bruno, on how can they order your book and how can they get more information on, on, on your research and writing?
0: Sure. Um, so I have the website dedicated to the Firebirds, uh, which basically is uh, org. That's the website they can go to. And then on the main page, there's the option to uh, order the book uh, via debit card, credit card, PayPal, whatever method they want to. I also made it easy um, for someone that wants to just send me an email in case they, they're they having difficulties ordering their way. They can just email me. It's pretty easy. It's uh, Bruno, B R U N O, at Uh They can email me if they have any questions, if they got any items, any comments, concerns, or how to pre order the book. And I also added the book on eBay. It's pretty easy. If you search posts on Firebirds, you'll come across that. uh, If you want to order there, why? So just trying to uh, put different outlets out there. um, They can make it easy for people to find out about this book. Um, And more more will be added as soon as uh, it actually comes out at the end of this month. Um, And, of course, there's also for those who have Facebook, I have a page dedicated to the Firebirds. Where I post updates every day, I post something new about the firebirds. It can be a photo, it can be information, it can be an interesting fact, and it's also a good way to connect with some of the players. They're also there. Um, they they're on the Facebook page itself for those that still have Facebook. Um, so those those are some methods that they can uh, find out more. And also uh, they can go to the website and subscribe to the newsletter. At least once a month, I make a new post and I send a new email uh, with a new story because the book might be done, but there's new stories that I come across every day.
1: Well, what an amazing story. Bruno, we're almost out of time. Uh, Again, I urge our listeners to pick up your book and visit uh, your website. Your website is beautiful. Uh, Great information, Uh, great story there as far as the firebirds are concerned. You truly are preserving the history of minor league football as far as past town is concerned to be very much commended for your efforts. Uh, it, to me, I, I'm just, I'm so amazed because you're so young and you, and you have such an appreciation of the history of, of them. It's, it's, uh, just so nice to, to see. And, uh, again, I really thank you for being on the show tonight. And, uh, again, I urge our listeners, uh, check out your website and check out and, and purchase your book. Uh, I think that's going to be a must for any minor league football fan and collector. Bruno, thank you for being on the show tonight. Thank you, Bruno. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we're down. uh, We're under five minutes, and we're going to be going into our two-minute warning and wrap up. uh, Jeff, a fascinating look at one town's history. I mean, if you really think about it, you go from the Maroons to the Firebirds, and you sprinkle the eagles all around you. Uh, what, what an amazing story to say the least.
2: Yeah, you said the word fascinating. I actually wrote that in my notes here I was taking when I was listening to Bruno. Uh, you know, I, I was aware a bit about the minor league teams that were around in the 60s and 70s. You know, a couple of them have card sets. You know, Bruno mentioned the Norfolk yep. Neptunes who are down here in Virginia. And, you know, occasionally you'll see some Neptunes cards. They – They had a set, I think it was on the side of um, Gary Carton's at one point. And and so you see those pop up, but I really never knew much about the league and the leagues and their affiliation with the NFL. I mean, I did not at all. I'm almost embarrassed to say I had no idea (laughs) that there were, there were minor league leagues that were truly affiliated with the NFL at one point because You know, yeah. as, as we've talked, the NFL so needs a feeder system other than college for so many reasons. Right. And, um, gosh, the the story he's told was just fascinating and the information he's collected on this team and even the whole the whole set of leagues that were related to this team was just, uh, you know, just an incredible story. So well, what really I got enjoyed do. it.
1: It it brought back great memories for me for that, that cuss period of roughly nineteen sixty five to nineteen sixty nine. There were two different football leagues. I had my minor league Hartford Knights. Uh the Sunday paper was just uh you know, an encyclopedia of football information. Uh I would uh run outside I distinctly remember Sunday mornings, get the newspaper, bring it inside. And uh, my father would always say, "I know you want the sports section, so here it is." And I basically would study it, you know, for the entire week, and uh, you know, just keep reading over the articles, so on and so forth. And again, that was a time when newspapers actually, re- you know, reported games. You actually had good information, had great statistics, so on and so forth. And uh, it just it brought back so many nice memories for me to, to remember that. And again, I distinctly remember being in my room with my radio, listening to Hartford Knights football on a Saturday night. And uh, I used to get mad because if we had a storm, uh, the the, the uh, station would cut in and out. <laughs> so I would, yeah. have to, I would have to move around the room with the antenna to try to make sure I could, I could pick it up type of thing. And uh, I always wished I could have gone to a game. But logistically, you know, being a kid, my father didn't want to drive to Hartford on a Saturday night. So, obviously, uh, I never got to a game, but uh, great, great, great memories of of that time period. And, again, I know I told a lot of people on a Sunday I was always fascinated because I could watch an AFL game and an NFL game on a Sunday afternoon with the two big games, whatever locally was being uh, shown. But, uh, you know, minor league football, especially here on the East Coast, has a fascinating history, and uh, I I don't know how many people are or are not aware of, of you know they were minor league teams for both the nfl and the afl uh, at that time all right we're down to uh less than 90 seconds as a reminder we're sponsored in part by msb sports cards check out their website at msbsportscards.com and also by bst auctions please check out their website at bstauctions.com jeff thank you very much for filling in on on short notice, uh, and again, uh, thanks for sharing that information on the Maroons. Uh, the stuff you have from them is just absolutely incredible, to say the least. It's historical, and I also like to thank uh, Bruno for coming on, who uh, uh, again provided us with uh, an incredible amount of information on uh, what is now not a forgotten team of minor league football. I would like to thank everybody for listening. I. Uh, we'll be back uh, with a couple of shows at the end of the month. Jeff, thanks for being
2: on. I appreciate it.
1: And uh, Thank thanks you, for Bob. Listening.
2: Enjoy the football games today, too. Later on, football today on a Saturday, NFL, baby. Right, right,
1: right. And, again, on any given Thursday, now Saturday, Sunday, or Monday, <laughs> anything can happen in the NFL. <laughs> All right, Thanks for listening, and we'll be back. Take care. All hey. right.